Hello, I'm Professor Rab Houston of the School of History in the University of St Andrews and you're listening to one of my podcasts in the series Promoting Mental Health Through the Lessons of History. This is Series 3 and it's about understanding mental health. Now, if you've listened to the other podcasts in Series 3, the interviews, you'll know that I usually give a long historical introduction. Might perchance be relieved to know that uh, what I'm going to do today is simply refer you to what I've already said in Series 1, which is purely historical. If you're interested in some background, and I will be giving some as we go through the interview, you could have a look at Block 9 of Series 1. There are three podcasts there. They're about psychiatry and the law, and 9.1, Crime and the Insanity Defence, is particularly relevant. Now that short podcast explains how insanity defences in the historic past operated at different stages of the judicial process, from the decision to prosecute through to sentencing and release. Insanity as an exculpation of blame has always existed, and the main change in the last century has been towards a greater standardisation of definitions and processes, and a reduction in the discretion open to the judiciary. Now I've learned a lot since I did that podcast, and as I say, some of it will come out today. The other background that you might find useful is my podcast interview in the same series with Chief Inspector Michael Brown of the West Midlands Police. He does extensive and insightful blogs and tweets about policing and mental health under the handle Mental Health Cop, or one word. They've been invaluable, and you can see this on social media, to his fellow police officers, anyone involved in psychiatry and forensic psychiatry in particular. Now, the past is certainly different to today. It's different in terms of sociology, criminology, law and psychiatry. In Victorian times, 150 years ago, for example, only 5% of arrests resulted in a conviction, which is much lower than today. But perhaps 20% of adult males had experience of being arrested during their lives, usually for some form of disorderly behaviour. Arrest rates now are much lower, but statistics on the, the importance to policing of mental disorders among the population are more reliable. And they show that a disproportionate number of people with mental ill health come into contact with the police, who are often the first public service to interact with individuals. Between 20% and 45% of police time is currently spent engaging with people experiencing mental ill health, either as victims, witnesses or offenders. So I'm sitting today in the Georgian splendour of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. 
which is in Queen Street in the very heart of Edinburgh and I'm here at the kind invitation of a forensic psychiatrist living and working in Scotland. Please introduce yourself. Uh, my name is John Crichton. I'm an honorary professor at the University of Edinburgh and I've been a forensic psychiatrist for nearly 30 years. Well, thank you for joining me, John. Can I start by asking how one becomes a psychiatrist in the UK? Psychiatrists are medically qualified and so they would go to medical school and complete a medical training and after medicine all doctors in the UK do a two-year foundation year before getting fully registered and during that two years people can do psychiatry and after that two years they can become core trainees in psychiatry which lasts three years before they do specialist training in psychiatry another three years and then they become consultants in whichever psychiatric specialty they choose. That's a very extensive training but can I ask why you yourself decided to choose psychiatry? I was always interested in mental health even before going to medical school. The thing that fascinated me while I was growing up was there was a figure in my family, my uncle, Archibald Crichton, and he had almost been airbrushed out of the family history because he'd taken his own life back in, in 1944. He was a doctor, and there weren't that many doctors in my family, and I found out later that he'd taken his life by carbon monoxide poisoning, and that was something that fascinated me after I qualified because that proved to be a very important story in the history of psychiatry and the history of, of suicide prevention. That fascination for mental health led me to be a psychiatric nurse between leaving school and starting medical school. And then at medical school I took every opportunity to find out about mental health. I did an intercalated psychology degree, so I took a year at one side to complete a psychology degree. And during my elective period, where medical students can go all around the world to do a little bit more in terms of getting experience, I went to Tanzania in a psychiatric hospital there. So by the time I finished my equivalent of foundation years, I was already looking like a psychiatrist and I was lucky enough to get onto the training scheme at Cambridge. That's fascinating, John. I continue to be struck by the number of psychiatrists of all kind who have some kind of lived experience of the problems with which they deal. I suppose it isn't surprising then that they're able to have such empathy. But can I ask... How many psychiatrists there are in the UK and how many are practising your specialism of forensic psychiatry? Well, here in Scotland we've got about 1,300 psychiatrists and I would estimate that relates to about 14,000, 15,000 in the UK as a whole. Forensic psychiatry was a very rare thing when I was starting out. When I was training... Uh, there were only a hundred consultant forensic psychiatrists in the UK. Now there are five or six times that number and that really shows how 
the specialism of forensic psychiatry has expanded over the last 25 years or so. I have to say I hadn't realised that forensic psychiatry had expanded so dramatically in the last generation, John. Certainly looking back 200 years, I think it's fair to say there were no specialists in giving legal evidence in court. Most of the doctors who were called to give evidence were those who already knew the patient for some other reason or who were simply called along to the scene of some kind of violent act. I'd like to move on to what forensic psychiatry is all about, but I'd like to start at a slightly odd angle, and that's by asking what it is not. And the reason I do that is because many of us rely for our knowledge of psychiatry and indeed many things on the media, things that we read, things that we see, things that we listen to. What kind of preconceptions or misconceptions are there about forensic psychiatry out there? Profiling, that we're somehow like Robbie Coltrane's cracker of that series of a few years ago. Now, a few forensic psychiatrists, or more commonly forensic psychologists, assist the police in offender profiling, but forensic psychiatry is really not involved in that. I'd like to briefly draw out the distinction that you just made there, John, between psychiatrists and psychologists, because I think it's uh, something that is sometimes misunderstood. Psychiatrists are essentially prescribing doctors. Psychologists study human actions and experiences more as a scientific discipline. So they're more into research, though there are obviously also clinical psychologists who work with those who have mental problems. But can we move now to a definition of what forensic psychiatry is actually about? In the UK, it's involved in three broad areas. And of course, forensic means to do with the law. And one of the big areas of forensic psychiatry is assisting the courts in writing reports about people with mental health difficulties as they relate to uh, particular legal cases. In the UK, it's also about treating people with mental health problems who are held in conditions of security, either a secure hospital or treating mental health problems within the prison setting. And finally, part of the forensic psychiatrist's job in the UK is supervising people who pose particular risks and who have mental health problems in the community, making sure that uh, they're safe and they're doing well. I'm glad you stressed the UK there, John, because again, a lot of the understandings that we have of forensic psychiatry are based on uh, films and TV productions. The two that I think are really very good in their own way are out of mind, out of sight. But that's about how forensic psychiatry operates in Canada. And probably better known to most listeners is Louis Theroux's programs uh, By Reason of Insanity, which is about the USA, about Ohio State Penitentiary. Yes, well, in North America, things are very different. A forensic psychiatrist in North America is exclusively concerned with 
psychiatry and legal cases. Uh, they would go s further to say that they're forensicists, that they're not concerned with the treatment of a patient, they're concerned in legal cases. And so the tradition in the USA is that the treating psychiatrist is not an objective person or that they're in an ethically sound position to provide court reports. Now in the UK we see that as a, as a bit of a virtue that the person who's giving the courts medical legal advice is also the person who's prepared to do the treatment as well. I believe that in North America people actually make a living from being so-called objective forensic psychiatrists. In other words, they do nothing except give evidence in court, or is that a misunderstanding? No, that's absolutely correct. So in, in Britain, we kind of mould both what in America they would consider to be forensic psychiatry and correctional psychiatry. In the UK, we blend both that North American concept of forensic psychiatry and correctional psychiatry into one. You're obviously a very highly trained medical practitioner, John. I wonder, do you also get a training in the law? Because phrases like psychopathic disorder, I believe, uh, are not a medical category, but a legal one, at least in England and Wales, referring to what's described as a persistent disorder or disability of the mind? Well, forensic psychiatrists train according to a General Medical Council approved curriculum and within that training there has to be familiarity with both the criminal law and the civil law, particularly in the jurisdiction where the individual is training. The GMC curricula has to cover three jurisdictions, Northern Ireland, England and Wales and Scotland and so is quite broad but within the jurisdiction where the forensic psychiatry trainee is based they'll have to be familiar both with criminal and civil law. Okay so I think it's good to point out that there are sometimes quite significant differences between the ways that the current mental health acts of 2003 and 2015 work in the three different parts, the three component parts of the British Isles, which are England and Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland. But I'd like to pick up on a point you just made there. You seem to be saying that you don't deal exclusively with criminal matters, but you also get into things civil. Is that right? Well, forensic psychiatrists employed by the NHS in the UK primarily will be dealing with criminal matters but of course people within the criminal justice system also have important civil law things to decide so for example consent to treatment can be an important topic one example might be those in prison who are refusing food there may be an assessment of somebody's ability to consent to having additional nutritional supplements as part of their treatment program or indeed the ability to refuse to consent to such things. More broadly psychiatrists may be involved outside of NHS work in assisting courts in things like personal injury claims or employment tribunals 
Now that's not simply the province of forensic psychiatrists, but all psychiatrists may act in a medical legal way at some point to assist civil cases of that sort. One might even say that more, most forensic psychiatry in the UK, in that broad sense, is done by people who aren't forensic psychiatrists. So who is your client? Or do you have multiple clients? I think that's a very good question. In a sense, we do have multiple clients. But first and foremost, we're medical doctors dealing with patients. And, we, uh, and that's our starting point. So I would be seeing you as a patient and seeking your consent. If I'm asked to do a report, I would normally ask your permission to provide that report to the court. Sometimes somebody doesn't have the ability to give that consent, in which case I may provide a court in your best interests without your consent. But mostly we're following the principles of good medical practice and seeking consent. So first and foremost, you represent the interests of the person apparently suffering from a mental disorder. Absolutely. Although doctors always look to the broader safety of society as well. That's not unique to forensic psychiatrists or psychiatrists in general, but doctors always have regard to the broader societal good as well. And there are links and parallels to how doctors may approach a patient who poses a risk to others with infectious disease, for example, in understanding the duties of a medical practitioner more broadly to society. That cusp between protecting the interests of the individual and the broader society is something I would like to return to later on. But for the moment, where and when do you first encounter patients? Are they mostly people who've been arrested for some sort of criminal offence? Uh, there's a, a wide variety, but that's often the case. So I can think of individuals that I've seen perhaps in the, the wee small hours in a police station somewhere in the country and I've been called in because there's been a serious act of violence and it's clear to usually the forensic physician or a forensic nurse that there's a serious mental health issue as well. Okay, so most of the people you see represent a threat to the general public and also possibly to themselves and therefore they are in secure accommodation. You mentioned earlier on that you work mostly in medium secure facilities. Can you explain what the levels of security are and what they mean? Well, up until very recently in the UK generally and even more recently in Scotland, there was really only one level of security and that was the high secure hospital or special hospital. More recently, we've had different layers of security. We've had, from the 1970s, the introduction of medium-secure units to bridge the divide between high security and local psychiatric hospitals f to assist patients moving more seamlessly through the psychiatric system. They began to be uh, in place in the English context from the 1970s and in Scotland we've had them since 2000. Okay, so the 
longer established high secure or high security hospitals such as Broadmoor in England which dates back to the 1860s and Rampton which was opened in just over a hundred years ago and in Scotland the what's currently called the State Hospital at Carstairs which was opened in 1948 as the State Institute for Mental Defectives. It took over the functions of Perth Prison's Criminal Lunatic Department, which was itself an early Victorian foundation. So that's the kind of high-security hospitals that have been around for a long time and certainly feature in the public imagination. But to take you back a step, you've met the patient and it's usually in a circumstance in which they're in police custody for the first time. So how do you make a diagnosis? Because a diagnosis is the first step in treatment. Do you use a diagnostic manual like the International Classification of Diseases? produced by the World Health Organization. Again, we would go back to medical principles. Any medical diagnosis is based on the interview with the subject, with a clinical examination, and then consideration of collateral material. The same is true in the forensic psychiatric context. I would take your history, what you tell me about yourself and about whatever symptoms you may identify are going on for you at a particular moment in time. I would then conduct an examination and in psychiatry that would be a mental state examination. I would ask questions about the particular mental health symptoms you presented with and I would identify particular characteristics that are particularly found in common mental health disorders. And then I would look at collateral information, perhaps information from family or other accounts of how you've been to help me form what my diagnosis is. You mentioned ICD, and that's a very important diagnostic guide. But I'm very aware that the diagnostic guides we have available, the International Classification of Disease or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, they're all in different editions now. So we have the fifth edition of DSM. We're looking forward to the 11th edition of ICD. And what these uh, textbooks do is they reconceptionalize problems. Things that were once considered mental health disorders are not considered mental health disorders now. And we understand the problems that people come to us with differently as as our understanding improves. Yes, the most famous example is homosexuality, which was not removed from DSM until 1973. But what you describe is an extremely rigorous process, which means you really are able to get inside someone's head. One of the things that's always bothered me about forensic psychiatry is... How do you know that a person isn't faking insanity, perhaps with a view to getting a lighter sentence? After all, that is a popular trope in some of the media. It, it's a common trope, and it's 
as old as forensic psychiatry has existed, is this person faking it? The first thing to say is that it's actually very difficult to mimic or fake major psychiatric illness. There are characteristics of how symptoms found in people with, say, schizophrenia present. And unless you have been intimately involved with somebody with schizophrenia or have a professional background, it's difficult to fake those symptoms. You may be able to pretend for a short period of time. And what we would do in those particular circumstances is admit somebody for a period of assessment. It's very difficult to fake serious mental health symptoms for a prolonged period of time with experienced nursing staff and other multidisciplinary colleagues observing you across the piece. In those very rare circumstances where somebody has successfully faked mental health problems, it's usually been found when those cases have been reviewed that the individual has specialist knowledge, perhaps as close family relative with uh, a major mental health problem, or indeed, I can think of one case where the person had worked as a mental health professional. Interesting. In the 19th century, the first and last question that judges asked expert witnesses in court was whether the accused was dissimulating. A particularly important case for the development of forensic psychiatry came in 1843, when a man called Daniel McNaughton attempted an assassination of the Prime Minister, who he claimed had ruined his business, but he accidentally shot and killed the Prime Minister's secretary. He was found guilty, but insane, and so not responsible. The public outcry that McNaughton got off led to a speedy clarification of what was then termed a disease of the mind. And these were the so-called McNaughton rules that were adopted quickly in England and Wales and soon after, I think in 1850, in the United States. The other question judges asked was whether the apparent mental disorder was actually just part of being human like being unhappy or expressing joy. And that leads me into a related question, which is where modern forensic psychiatrists draw the line between what is a variation on normal behaviour and something that is more seriously pathological. I know, John, we've chatted about this before. I give talks about the history of psychiatry in Scottish prisons, and I'm aware that prison populations have a much higher level of serious psychiatric problems than the general population. But that many people in prison are simply the victims of poor impulse control or are unusually aggressive. So how do you make that call as a forensic psychiatrist? So I think a distinction needs to be made between a diagnosis that you might be able to find in one of the diagnostic manuals which has a code for a very wide variety of diagnostic categories and even codes for things like faking and what we can treat within uh, mental health care and what might be appropriate for inpatient mental health management and so 
a wide variety of conditions might be described in various different ways found in the psychiatric textbooks but that doesn't mean to say that psychiatry is the right science or agency to really assist people with antisocial behaviours and so on. So this must be a particularly pressing issue for the work you do in prisons. That's right. Prison psychiatry is quite a challenging area in which to do mental health care. One of the particular problems is the widespread use of illicit substances and now we have novel psychoactive substances recently called legal highs to contend with which sometimes are less easy to identify. People who come into prison will often take substances which they're not used to be taking in the community and these can have unusual effects on them. Substances such as amphetamines mimic the symptoms of schizophrenia and so when dealing with a population who are taking an unknown set of new substances to them there can be all sorts of presentations which are difficult to uh, get to grips with. Another particular problem is that of a wide variety of mental health medications have a currency within the prison population and individuals may get bullied to try and obtain things like sleeping pills or benzodiazepines and the psychiatrist has to be wary of overprescribing in case somebody is being coerced to try and get those kind of medications. Yes, I did a, an interview with my St Andrew's colleague Alex Baldacchino who's a specialist on substance misuse and I've got to say I was astonished by the range and the strength of synthetic highs which are now available. It makes me realise what a sheltered life I've led. But if we can move back to the diagnostic process. I'd like to look now at its outcome. So what happens to people as a result of your diagnosis? Well the diagnosis is usually part of a series of legal tests that the forensic psychiatrist would have to address before the court. Usually the very first test of any mental health defence or any sentence that involves mental health treatment is does this person suffer from mental disorder? Is it a mental illness, a learning disability or a personality disorder? And so the forensic psychiatrist would have to address those particular diagnostic categories to answer that first legal test. After that, depending on the circumstances, there would be other legal tests. I guess like most people, I think of the principal forum of the forensic psychiatrist being the criminal courtroom. So can I ask what kind of questions you get asked in practice in court? Well, the old adage is that if you write a good psychiatric report, you shouldn't be asked any questions in court. Uh, and there is a, there's a lot of truth to that. Most commonly in court, you are taken through your psychiatric report. So a psychiatric report would set out the circumstances of the of the interview that you've had with the individual and what sources of collateral information you've had available to you. It's also important that when making a diagnosis if there is uncertainty or if there is 
an alternative diagnosis that that uncertainty is presented to the court as well. The psychiatric expert is the same as any expert before the court. They have to be independent, independent in the sense that they have to give an honest opinion and not biased according to who instructs them. That sounds like a subtler and a more constructive approach to problem solving than I'm used to in the 18th and 19th century documents where the bench could sometimes be quite brutal with so-called expert witnesses. Essentially the judges wanted a straight answer to a straight question and they wanted it briefly. But can I take you back to something we were discussing earlier on? You said that the the patient was your principal client. Can I ask if you have anything to do with the victims of crime or their families or indeed the families of the accused offender? Well, there's a branch of forensic psychiatry that concentrates on supporting victims. But more broadly, the histories of our perpetrators often involve trauma and victimization themselves. It would be wrong to suppose that the experience of offenders does not involve them also being victims in other circumstances. And in order to probably meet their needs and to maintain the safety for everyone in the future, that has to be recognized as well. Sometimes in forensic psychiatry, a team might split along the lines of some members of the team look at someone too much as a perpetrator, some members of the team look at someone too much as a victim. The real challenge for the forensic psychiatry team is to hold both victim and perpetrator together as one. Of course, we also have work just with victims, victims who are not our patients or clients in that sense, sometimes we're asked to do reports on the reliability of victims who are witnesses in criminal cases. But perhaps the most extraordinary time that we work with victims is when they are close family members of the perpetrator. So in terms of the most common type of victim of somebody with serious mental illness, it's often a friend or a family member who has been acting in a caring role. Now sometimes circumstances mean that that relationship is lost, but in many cases even those who have experienced extraordinary violence will wish to have an ongoing relationship with their relative once they've recovered from an episode of illness. Okay, so we've dealt with the process of diagnosis and also the forensic psychiatrist's interaction with the multiple clients or perhaps stakeholders in the process. If I could return to the patient, can I ask when you know that someone has, let us say, recovered, or is, is that not a concept that's, that's valid, at least that their condition can be managed and that they are no longer a danger to themselves and others? Well, our concept of recovery has changed in recent years. The old medical view that recovery was like getting the measles and then not having the measles was never a very 
good analogy for mental health conditions where people often will have symptoms that can be managed but they need ongoing medication to manage those symptoms or symptoms that are ameliorated but don't completely go away. The question of whether somebody is completely better is not so much one that we would address. It's are they sufficiently better to progress to a less restricted environment? Are they sufficiently better to move to the community, to be maintained in the community safely with visiting mental health professionals and ongoing support? We've covered quite a lot of specific ground in this interview, John, for which many thanks. I'd like to ask you now a much larger question, and that's what are the main problems, or what is the main problem that you face in your day-to-day work as a forensic psychiatrist? I think that the main day-to-day issues that we face are things that are faced by the health service the length and breadth of the country. Do we have sufficient resources? Do we have the right beds in the right places? The right professionals to see people with the problems that they present? The most stressful thing in my day-to-day life is when I see somebody perhaps in prison custody who desperately needs to be transferred to psychiatric hospital and I cannot identify an appropriate psychiatric bed for them. That's extraordinarily stressful for me, but that's nothing compared to the suffering of the individual who's inappropriately in a custodial setting when they need to be in a hospital setting. There's a real issue here of parity. If you have a heart attack and you're in prison, you'll be taken to hospital for treatment of that heart attack. If you're in prison and you present with psychotic symptoms, you believe that people are trying to kill you, you may harm yourself, then you may not be transferred so speedily to an appropriate psychiatric hospital. So it's essentially a question of resources. Well, we're we're 10 years into austerity. In my career, year on year, mental health services got a little bit better every year until austerity struck. And as I speak I can think of difficulties uh, around the country with services who are really struggling in terms of having sufficient staff, sufficient beds and we're also dealing with a criminal justice system which is really creaking at the seams. You mentioned the justice system and in August of 2019 I did a public photo exhibition in collaboration with the National Records of Scotland called Prisoners or Patients? Criminal Insanity in Victorian Scotland. It was based on the records of Perth Prison, which had a criminal lunatic department, which was the, the forerunner for more than a century, was the forerunner of the state hospital at Carstairs. Now, one of the things I said in a presentation that I gave and I've also given before forensic psychiatrists at a conference in Scotland the the main thing that struck me that was different about the Victorian period was that the justice system was concerned primarily with the safety of the public nowadays it struck me the 
interests of the offender stroke patient seem to be much more to the fore. Now, that's what I thought. And then after the formal talk, I talked informally to some of the forensic psychiatrists who came to the conference. And I got the distinct sense that some of them were un uneasy. They, they chafed against the requirements of the justice system, which seemed to be preventing them from doing what they thought was best for their patient, which, as you've said earlier on, is the priority. Would you like to respond to that? I know it's potentially a sensitive issue. One important aspect to appreciate is that medical practitioners generally have always had a wider interest in public health. If somebody, for example, has an infectious disease, there are duties on the medical practitioner to safeguard others. Now, by extension, that principle can be extended to psychiatric care as well. And that's not unique to forensic psychiatry. In forensic psychiatry, though, we have a group of individuals who already may have committed very serious acts of violence in the context of mental health problems. And if they have gone through the criminal courts, it is common for the courts to impose additional restrictions on them, where the psychiatrist and others involved in the clinical care of a patient have to give regular reports to a government department. And it's very interesting looking at the history because even 150 years ago, people were talking about conditional discharge of certain groups of patients. We use exactly the same language today where a tribunal, where a judge is uh, sitting at the head will give the conditions of somebody's safe release into the community. Public safety is hand in hand with patient care, but the best public safety is achieved when the patient care is optimised. Well, thank you for handling that question in such a careful and yet candid and constructive way, John. We're now drawing to the close of the interview, and I thought we might have a lighter moment. I wanted to ask you if there are any media representations of psychiatry, and forensic psychiatry in particular, that you think are either particularly good or particularly bad. I'm going to answer that question by telling you about a film which is so bad it's good. The film is, I think, from the early 1970s and is called Asylum. And it features a young, idealistic psychiatrist coming to an austere psychiatric institution. And the young psychiatrist is Robert Powell, uh, who was to um, feature as Jesus of Nazareth in a, in a television adaptation and the young psychiatrist goes into the institution and speaks to the medical superintendent having been shown there by a nurse in starched uniform down various corridors and there is a debate between the old psychiatrist and the young psychiatrist about therapeutic approaches the young psychiatrist saying that he wants to 
get people better through understanding and dialogue and so on. And the old psychiatrist saying that he'd only made one mistake in his life and that was to turn his back on a patient. He's been paraplegic ever since and the only thing that is worth its salt is the electrical door to keep everybody locked in. And, and the young psychiatrist is given a task. He is to go up to the secure ward and identify his predecessor who he learns had become mentally unwell and who had killed somebody. And so the young Robert Powell goes up to this uh, ward where he sees a succession of patients, all of whom have committed homicide in some extraordinary fashion. And he can't decide which of them could possibly be his predecessor. And as he's pondering his dilemma, the attendant who's been showing him around strangles him with a stethoscope. Now, it's so appalling that it's something that I use in my teaching of criminology students because it shows every prejudice against forensic psychiatry that these are strange, exotic individuals who are not to be trusted, who are to be sent to a faraway place and throw away the key. And in fact, the people you should be wary of are those misguided psychiatrists because all they manage to achieve is to make everyone less safe and they may get their comeuppance and get strangled in the process. Great choice, John. I think I remember that film because it was the first I legally went to see as an 18-year-old back in 1972. I had to do some research to find out these additional details. It probably won't surprise you to know that in the US the film was released under the far from subtle title The House of Crazies. Rather more edifying, the script was written by someone called Robert Bloch, who wrote the book Psycho, on which the famous Alfred Hitchcock film was based. But just to draw things to a close, are there any final thoughts that you'd like to offer the listeners? I think the message I would give out is that any one of us could have a serious mental health problem. And in that state, sometimes people do the most awful of things. The people I most respect are those who recover from an episode of illness and rebuild their lives and contribute again to their families and wider society despite the burden of sometimes committing the most dreadful of acts when they weren't responsible for their conduct. So is that to you, John, the most satisfying part of being a forensic psychiatrist? Oh yes. I get ten times the satisfaction and reward to see somebody leave the clinic to restore their life in the community than I ever do admitting someone. On that uplifting note, I think we'll end the interview. I'm Professor Rab Houston of the School of History in the University of St Andrews here in Bonnie, Scotland, and it's been my privilege and pleasure today to interview Dr John Crichton, a highly respected and long-serving forensic psychiatrist working here in Scotland also. John, thank you very much. <laughs>